Chapter One of Thomas Wingfold, Curate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Shoreman. Thomas Wingfold, Curate by George MacDonald. Chapter One Helen Lingard. A swift gray November wind had taken every chimney of the house for an organ-pipe, and was roaring in them all at once, quelling the more distant and varied noises of the woods, which moaned and surged like a sea. Helen Lingard had not been out all day. The morning, indeed, had been fine, but she had been writing a long letter to her brother Leopold at Cambridge and had put off her walk in the neighboring park till after luncheon, and in the meantime the wind had risen, and brought with it a haze that threatened rain. She was in admirable health, had never had a day's illness in her life, was hardly more afraid of getting wet than a young farmer, and enjoyed wind, especially when she was on horseback. Yet as she stood looking from her window, across a balcony where shivered more than one autumnal plant that ought to have been removed a week ago, out upon the old-fashioned garden and meadows beyond where each lonely tree bowed with drifting garments, I was going to say like a suppliant, but it was away from its storming enemy, she did not feel inclined to go out. That she was healthy was no good reason why she should be unimpressible, any more than good temper would be a reason for indifference to the behavior of one's friend. She always felt happier in a new dress when it was made to her mind and fitted her body, and when the sun shone she was lighter-hearted than when it rained. I had written merrier, but Helen was seldom merry and had she been made aware of the fact, and questioned why, would have answered, because she so seldom saw reason. She was what all her friends called a sensible girl, but, as I say, that was no reason why she should be an insensible girl as well, and be subject to none of the influences of the weather. She did feel those influences, and therefore it was that she turned away from the window, and with the sense rather than the conviction that the fireside in her own room was rendered even more attractive by the unfriendly aspect of things outside, and the roar in the chimney which happily was not accompanied by a change in the current of the smoke. The hours between luncheon and tea are confessedly dull. But dullness is not inimical to a certain kind of comfort, and Helen liked to be that way comfortable. Nor had she ever yet been aware of self-rebuke because of the liking. Let us see what kind and degree of comfort she had in the course of an hour and a half attained, and in discovering this I shall be able to present her to my reader with a little more circumstance. She sat before the fire in a rather masculine posture. I would not willingly be rude, but the fact remains a posture in which she would not, I think, have sat for her photograph, 
leaning back in a chintz-covered easy chair, all the lines of direction about her parallel with the lines of the chair, her arms lying on its arms and the fingers of each hand folded down over the end of each arm, square, straight, right-angled, gazing into the fire with something of the look of a sage, but one who has made no discovery. She had just finished the novel of the day, and was suffering a mild reaction, the milder, perhaps, that she was not altogether satisfied with the consummation. For the heroine had, after much sorrow and patient endurance, at length married a man whom she could not help knowing was to be not worth having. For the author even knew it. Only such was his reading of life, and such his theory of artistic duty, that what it was a disappointment to Helen to peruse, it seemed to have been a comfort to him to write. Indeed, her satisfaction went so far that, although the fire kept burning away in perfect content before her, enhanced by the bellowing complaint of the wind in the chimney, she yet came nearer thinking than she had ever been in her life. Now, thinking, especially to one who tries it for the first time, is seldom or never a quite comfortable operation, and hence Helen was very near becoming actually uncomfortable. She was even on the borders of making the unpleasant discovery that the business of life, and that not only for North Pole expeditions, African explorers, pyramid inspectors, and such like, but for every man and woman born into the blindness of the planet is to discover. After which discovery there is little more comfort to be had of the sort with which Helen was chiefly conversant. But she escaped for the time after a very simple and primitive fashion, although it was indeed a narrow escape. Let me not be misunderstood, however, and supposed to imply that Helen was dull in faculty, or that she contributed nothing to the bubbling of the intellectual pool in the social gatherings at Glaston. Far from it. When I say that she came near thinking, I say more for her than any but the few who know what thinking is will understand. For that which chiefly distinguishes man from those he calls the lower animals is the faculty he most rarely exercises. True, Helen supposed she could think like other people because the thoughts of other people had passed through her in tolerable plenty, leaving many a phantom conclusion behind, but this was their thinking, not hers. She had thought no more than was necessary now and then, to the persuasion that she saw what a sentence meant, after which her acceptance or rejection of what was contained in it, never more than lukewarm, depended solely upon its relation to what she had somehow or other, she could not have told how, come to regard as the proper style of opinion to hold upon things in general. The social matrix, which up to this time had ministered to her development, had some relations with Mayfair, it is true, but scanty ones indeed with the universe so that her present condition was like that of the common bees, every one of which nature fits for a queen. 
but its nurses prevent from growing one by providing for it a cell too narrow for the unrolling of royalty and supplying it with food not potent enough for the nurture of the ideal with this difference however that the cramped and stinted thing comes out if no queen then a working bee and helen who might be both was neither yet if i were at liberty to mention the books on her table it would give a few of my readers no small help towards the settling of her position in the valued file of the young women of her generation but there are reasons against it she was the daughter of an officer who her mother dying when she was born committed her to the care of a widowed aunt and almost immediately left for india where he rose to high rank and somehow or other amassed a considerable fortune partly through his marriage with a hindu lady by whom he had one child a boy some three years younger than helen when he died he left his fortune equally divided between the two children helen was now three-and-twenty and her own mistress her appearance suggested Norwegian blood, for she was tall, blue-eyed, and dark-haired, but fair-skinned with regular features, and an over—still some who did not like her said hard—expression of countenance. No one had ever called her Nellie, yet she had long remained a girl, lingering on the broken borderland after several of her school companions had become young matrons. Her drawing-master, a man of some observation and insight, used to say Miss Lingard would wake up somewhere around forty. The cause of her so nearly touching the borders of thought this afternoon was that she became suddenly aware of feeling bored. Now Helen was even seldomer bored than Mary, and this time she saw no reason for it neither had any person to lay the blame on. She might have said it was the weather, but the weather had never done it before. Nor could it be want of society, for George Bascombe was to dine with them. So was the curate, but he did not count for much. Neither was she weary of herself. That, indeed, might be only a question of time, for the most complete egotist, Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte, must at length get weary of his paltry self. But Helen, from the slow rate of her expansion, was not old enough yet. Nor was she in any special sense wrapped up in herself. It was only that she had never yet broken the shell which continues to shut in so many human chickens, long after they imagine themselves citizens of the real world. Being somewhat bored, then, and dimly aware that to be bored was out of harmony with something or other, Helen was on the verge of thinking, but, as I have said, escaped the snare in a very direct and simple fashion she went fast asleep, and never woke till her maid brought her the cup of kitchen tea from which the inmates of some houses derive the strength 
to prepare for dinner. End of chapter one. Recording by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois.